welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast brought to you by cracked rackets my name is alex gruskin so much going on at cracked rackets right now we just finished recapping daniel medvedev's first masters 1000 title people who have listened to our podcast know i'm a huge medvedev fan so it was fun to watch that run analyze the bigger picture things we can take away from that of course madison keys as well gets her title in cincinnati u.s open qualies this week andy murray makes his return in winston-salem so as always the tennis world does never leaves us a shortage of topics to talk about but in the spirit of the u.s U.S. Open coming uh, to us in the spirit of getting you listeners prepared for the year's final Grand Slam. We're going to talk U.S. Open preview today, and in order to do that, I had to bring on this guest. You know his work as the co-editor of Tennis with an Accent, TennisAccent.com, the author of the book Novak Djokovic, Making the Rough Places Plain, and of course, as I like to call him, the king of the wee tweets, Matt Zemek. Hey, great shot, and welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you for that welcome. And, you know, the, the, the retweet is the French cousin of the retweet. That was the original <laughs> genesis for it. Look, I, as I've said before, I'm always in for a good pun. And every time I see the retweet, I laugh. So I, I'm in. Uh, and whenever two people say yes, it's a W-E tweet. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I'm all in. But before we get into today's preview, as I mentioned, you and your work at Tennis with an Accent, you guys are always keeping tennis fans busy with your astute analysis. I had the chance to meet Andrew Burton in Cincinnati. He was doing his uh, Cincy Daily, I believe it was the Cincinnati Scene Setter Series, so I know you guys have been running that. I also know the lesson of Daniil Medvedev, uh, an article you wrote, Kuznetsov and Gasquet, personal champions, Madison Keys, inspired by the WTA locker room. But you know, what's the vibe right now at Tennis with an Accent? You guys gearing up for the U.S. Open? Yes, and I mean, Andrew, you know, flew to, back to Houston from Cincinnati, and his arms are very tired. Um, <laughs> and uh, also his his uh, his body, I'm sure, is pretty tired because he did write the morning scene setter and an evening snapshot on uh, the match of the day, whatever he felt was the match of the day. So he did two stories each day, every day for seven days straight. And so he carried the site, and Sakib and I are really grateful for his work, and we think we think that it speaks for itself. And you know, it's, it's an open. It's not. A, it's not something that Andrew hides. He he is a Federer fan. He will you know do play by play on Federer matches, but it it shows that you know you can be a fan of a player and you can deliver straight down the middle analysis. It's called being an adult, you know, and it's called <laughs> being a it's called being a professional. Uh, there are so many fan wars on Twitter, and um, our you know because precisely because Andrew is a Federer fan, you know we we catch some flack at tennis with an accent because you know we have people who have been or are Federer fans on the staff, and I I was a you know I make no secret of this either. I was a Federer fan before I became a tennis journalist. I mean, someone gave me my break. Uh, five years ago to write tennis professionally and so then I but then I had to don my journalist hat and it's it's a thing where you know when you when you watch any sporting competition professionally if someone else says hey I'm going to pay you for this you adopt a totally different mindset and you you very quickly realize that if you're writing something for uh, consumption in in a professional capacity not just a fanboy or fangirl, you know, blog, just, you know, having some stream of consciousness word salad. But, you know, if you're trying to seriously analyze 
a sporting event for a mass audience and give what is uh, presented as serious adult analysis you just have to watch a match in a different with a different mentality you have to watch it as an adult you have to watch it as a professional you have to watch it with journalistic principles in mind and if you're serious about the work and if you're serious about in this case tennis you'll give it to people straight and andrew burton gave it to people straight he always gives it to people straight and so that's what Sakib and i love about andrew we're really thankful for all that he did in Cincinnati, and I hope you, I hope that you that you know you uh, had a, enjoyed meeting him and were able to exchange a few words of wisdom. Look, Andrew Burden is a guy who looks like he was writing two articles a day. I mean, he's a workhorse. You can just see his love for the game, his passion. He's there, uh, you know, eight to eight. Some journalists cut out early. Others, you know, like Andrew, are there for the you know from point one to the last point of the day. And yeah, you talk about bias. Of course, we all have our bias. I think you say this uh, on Twitter before, but every person goes into an event with a bias. That's we're all individuals, of course, and this is not tennis related. But you know, I can have in the past said I'm a big fan of Daniil Medvedev's tennis style, his upside, and still look at Cincinnati and be able to talk about how great Andre Rublev looked, how great Madison Keys looked, all of the you know Kuznetsov, Kenin, all of the different storylines, keeping that in perspective, and that's why I think his scene setters were so enjoyable because you got to look at all the day's uh, biggest matches what the big narratives were on the site and that for me why it was so fun to just be on site to see these people in person I've said this a couple of times I think since being there but like to watch Andre Rublev and FAA hit forehands you're just like oh that's different than anything I've ever seen you know I watched Federer Djokovic all these guys practice but the way these young guys are hitting you you know you see where the future of the game is going and you know I know for you guys on the podcast front speaking of future of where the game's going. Uh, great uh, great guests you guys have had, Tim Mayotte, Mike McIntyre of the Tennis Canada podcast, Sophia Kennan, and then, of course, ten, uh, Karen from Tennis Panorama, and that sort of leads us into the U.S. Open. And uh, just quick plug for this po- podcast. I know you guys talked about the ups and downs of the U.S. Open experience, what fans should be looking for. Can you talk a little bit about that preview? Yeah, well, I mean, so Karen Pestena, Tennis News TPN on Twitter, you know, editor and founder of the tennis site, Tennis Panorama News. I mean, she just talked to Saka for a good half hour about just the things you need to keep in mind if you're not used to the U.S. Open and being at the Billie Jean King USTA National Tennis Center. Sunscreen, white, wear white, breathable clothing, hydrate a lot, wear soft, cushiony shoes for moving around the grounds, take lots of breaks, you know, stay, stay in the shade as much as possible. Um, you know, and handling the Labor Day weekend, which is absolutely nutty. So the Friday through the Monday is absolutely intense. Grounds are absolutely packed, you know, lots of huge crowds. So you're going to get even hotter in addition to the weather, just the fact that a lot of bodies are crowding together and also the walkways are going to be crowded. It's going to be hell. You need to, have a plan well in advance, mapping out the matches that you want to see, making sure that the logistics are good, making sure that you also don't wear yourself out too much, you know, that you build in breaks, you build in uh, times to get at least some rest or some, you know, when your mind can be off for at least a little bit. If you're, if you plan a very heavy um, itinerary with few breaks, you need to probably stay in one spot as opposed to running all around the grounds, just all those things in terms of balancing 
what you want to see with your need for rest, your need for hydration, your need for nourishment, your need for sun protection, and really, especially in relationship to last year with the suffocating humidity, you know, making making sure that you and your friends don't pass out, don't have, uh, you know, a, a health alarm so that your day gets, you know, derailed. Take all the precautions possible, and uh, really, you do have to plan your day in advance. You can't just wing it, uh, or at least, you know, you could find yourself in a little bit of trouble and distress if you do think that you can just kind of wing it and you can be Superman or Superwoman uh, and do everything. You just you just have to have a plan and err on the side of safety. I mean, if, if the weather is really extreme in New York, that's going to be a real concern. So Karen did a great job with Sakib on our uh, U.S. Open Fan Guide podcast. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Those are, you know, qualifying's free, so get your advice in now. Go check those early rounds out. I do want to add two things to that, you know, public service announcements. Bring baby wipes. You're going to be touching a lot of handles, so is everyone else. You're going to be, you know, you don't want to bring those diseases with you. Wipe those hands off. Be sanitized. Hand sanitizer works as well. And part two of public service, please deodorant, some sort of spray. I start to smell when I'm, you know, I sweat my, you know, I shits like a chaser when I'm in Cincinnati. So I know that New York heat is going to be anything, if not worse, uh, just a little, you know, a little stick under the arms. It's a good for everyone. The, the fans sitting around you will appreciate it as you're wandering from court to court. You're not going to get any looming eyes. So keep that in mind. But Enough of a preview. Uh, all of that being said, we want to talk a little U.S. Open today. And I asked you to, uh, as preparation for this, for our exercise, we're going to be doing this on both the men's and women's single sides on the Great Shot podcast front. Today, we're going to start with the women. I asked you to put together a list of five players to watch heading into the U.S. Open. There was no criteria beyond that. They could be you know, top players. They could be players ranked in the 80 to 100 range. Whatever five players intrigued you the most. Uh, but before we get into that, the question I want to start out with, I, I was coming up with metaphors for the scene of this uh, women's singles U.S. Open in 2019 and just how open the field's been. You mentioned this stat before, 12 different women in the 12 semifinal spots in the Grand Slams thus far this year. Uh, the comparison I came up with, it's really the Hunger Games right now. All of these players are putting up their best two weeks and nominating themselves as tribute. And maybe Bianca Andreescu is Katniss Everdeen because she's been the girl on fire whenever she seems to play these big events. But it's just a wide-open, dog-eat-dog competition. It is. And you know, if you were to ask me, Matt, is, is, are, is, will one of the 12 major semifinalists make a second major semifinal, or are we going to have 16 different uh, major semifinals this year, which is which would be truly remarkable. I'm kind of leaning toward the 16 of 16. Um, I, I think that if if there's one exception, you know, especially with Serena and Osaka entering with injury questions, I think that Pliskova might be the one player who can get to that second semifinal. And yet, you look at Pliskova and you say, you know, when you when she gets to the fourth round and quarters of majors. You know, it usually doesn't work out for her. I mean, she's been good. She's been good the past three years, not just the past few months, at making quarters and semis at a lot of tour events. I mean, that's that's really her virtue. She is the queen of the quarterfinal. Uh, but um, being able to make navigate those last stages has been a problem. She has not been back to a major final since her only one, which was three years ago when she lost to Kerber. But that was, you know, her epiphany. That was her breaking out moment. 
she won Cincinnati, and then she uh, saved match point against Venus in the fourth round and made it all the way to the final, and yet she hasn't been back to a major final since then. So, you know, I, 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 I could certainly see Barty getting there. I could certainly see a few other players getting to that second semifinal, but right now, boy, I, I certainly, I mean, obviously the draw is going to, make some stories more realistic than others. You know, A will have to play B and A or A will avoid C until the final, whatever. Obviously those stories are going to be, you know, dictated to a certain extent by the draw. But just if you were asking, if you were to ask me right now before the draw, I'm really am leaning toward four more new uh, major semifinalists in 2019. And that's the context I had to think about when doing this exercise is that we have seen, you know, 12 different players thus far. So will that trend continue? Are there certain players who have made semifinals who maybe I want to knock off? Are there players I want to circle who I think, you know, you mentioned Ashley Barty across all the surfaces, quarterfinals of the Australian Open. She wins, I believe, Miami. Uh, You know, she obviously won the French Open, had success on the grass. So she's been as good as any player on the WA. WTA tour and yet she loses her first first match of the year in Toronto she hit plays an incredibly weird tournament goes down I think two first sets or maybe three first sets in back-to-back matches uh back-to-back to back matches before ultimately losing uh in that I believe semifinal to Kuznetsova so you're not really sure about her form yeah you mentioned Osaka you mentioned Serena and that's that's what I had to think about is who are the players who maybe don't have that much match wear on their body or who have started to play better tennis of late uh that I I thought, you know, that I wanted to talk about that I think uh, fans should be aware of as they're watching this U.S. Open. And so with that being said, uh, just so our listeners know, I did cheat. It's my show. I get to cheat. Uh, So I have seven players, but I'm hoping there will be a little bit of overlap. And with that in mind, Matt, the first player you want to talk about heading into the 2019 U.S. Open. Sophia Kennan. Really, so I I knew I feel like that was an obvious one, so I I made stuff for her, but I have other names in mind. But yes, I think that is a name a lot of players have, a lot of fans, a lot of media members have circled. Give the reasons why you're watching her. Well, you know, if you remember how Arena Sabalenka came on strong in the second half of the 2018 season, I mean, who's the who is the closest approximation in 2019? To me, it's Kennan. Uh, you know, it's not Bianca Andrescu because Andrescu had her breakout at Indian Wells. So it's not as though at what Andrescu did in Toronto was entirely new. She had already done it in Indian Wells. It was still, you know, phenomenal and amazing that she did what she did in Toronto after the four months away from the tour. Nevertheless, uh, you know, this this these past two weeks for Kennan were a statement that, you know, she she's coming for everybody and she doesn't have I mean, you know, she won a fair amount of matches in the first half of the season, but she wasn't making the finals of premier mandatories uh, or the semifinals of of majors. If you were to ask me, you know, who's going to be the, you know, there's almost certain to be another first time major semifinalist, not in 2019, but overall, you know, for first career major semifinalist, there's at least going to be one, if not two. And to me, Kennan is, is as solid a pick as I could give uh, in, in that regard. So, so she just is very much at the head of the list. And the fact that, um, you know, that, remember that she played Andrescu uh, in Acapulco in February. 
And it's, it's amazing to be here on the eve of the U.S. Open and realize just how resonant and important that match was. And to, to bring uh, Sabalenka into this discussion one more time, I mean, the, the match of the 2018 Women's Open, I mean, the controversy was Serena-Osaka, but the best match was Osaka-Sabalenka in the fourth round. It was the only match in which Osaka lost a set. And after that match, I thought this, and I'm sure plenty of other people thought this around the, the tennis community uh, globally, and that is, man, wouldn't it be something if Osaka and Sabalenka became the next great WTA rivalry over the next 10 years? And here we are on the eve of the U.S. Open, and if anything, the rivalry which has replaced it, or the possible rivalry, I should say, which has replaced Osaka-Sabalenka as, you know, give me this over the next 10 years, it's Andrescu and Kennan. So that that is a big reason why Kennan uh, rockets to the top of the list, that she is such a compelling figure, and it seems that bigger and better things are ahead of her. I agree with a lot of what you said. Why I think she may even have a stronger case to do well at this year's U.S. Open than Sabalenka did going into last year's is, as you mentioned, she had success at the beginning of the year. You talked about that Acapulco final she made in the run-up to that. She beats Garcia, Jabour, Flipkins, Cornish, Midlova. Not the craziest uh, result. Or, or Sorry, that was her title in, in Hobart. Uh, in the run to Acapulco, she beats Pedersen, Voltaire, Azarenka, Andrescu. And as you mentioned, that Andrescu-Kennan rivalry does seem to be flourishing. And then you look at her run since Wimbledon. She may have been the best player on the WTA circuit in terms of results. Since that point, she lost a first round, or she beat Jennifer Brady, loses in the round of 16 to Lauren Davis at the City Open, but then she goes to Toronto, makes the semifinals, beats C, Barty, Yastremska, Svitolina, before losing to Andrescu. In Cincy, she beats Gorgeous, uh, Baya, Svitolina, Osaka, before losing to Keys. I mean, she has been that good this season. And then the other thing I, I was looking at as I came up with these lists, how these players have done on the hard courts in 2019. You look at the losses she's had. She lost to Halep in three sets on on hard court. She lost to Barty on a hard court. She lost to Svitolina in three sets on a hard court. She lost to Andrescu twice. She lost to Keys at Cincy. We all saw how well Madison Keys was playing. I think she has solidified herself in 2019 as one of the top 20 players on the WTA. And we were joking before, you could make a case for maybe 35 players to win uh, the U.S. Open on the women's side. And you know, up to that point, you know, maybe after 50, it's laughable, but there are 35 players where you could say, okay, like if it all goes wrong, I could see that player coming up on top. And given her recent form, there's no reason Sophia Kennan can't be at the top of that list. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, and I mean, I, I tried to make this point earlier this week at tennisaccent.com that, you know, Madison Keys fully deserved her Cincinnati championship. I mean, it was no fluke. It was no joke. She beat Halep in a, in a terrific close match, uh, you know, and then she beats Kennan and then she beats, you know, an informed Kuznetsova. I mean, those are, those are legit wins. Those are big wins. She earned it. There, there's no asterisk yet. One can say that while Keys fully earned her Cincinnati title, the WTA is just a random outcome generator. I mean, it, there, there is no rhyme or reason from one week to the next. I mean, no one, zero, expected key, a Keys-Kuznetsova final. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's totally, 
totally out of nowhere, a lot like Alina Spitalina making her first major semifinal at Wimbledon. I mean, just, you know, just these random results just keep popping out here and there. Barbara Stritzola making her first major semifinal at age 33 at Wimbledon. I mean, there's just no consistency week to week. That's not a knock on these players. It's just that one week has practically no connection to what's going to happen the next week. And so that is, that's really why, in addition to the 12 different women being major semifinalists, that's why this, this U.S. Open is totally up in the air. And if you're going to ask me who's going to win, I'm going to give you the only intellectually honest answer. I don't have a friggin' clue. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you. And I do want to say the last point on Kennan before we move on. Uh, you look at her. This is her fourth career U.S. Open. And so, you know, this isn't her first or second experience. She's done this now a couple of times. I believe she won the Girls 18's wild card from San Diego a couple of years ago. And, you know, this being her fourth appearance, she's made the third round in her past two U.S. Opens. So she knows how to navigate those first two matches, knows how to put herself in a position to make that second week. She made that second week for the first time earlier uh, in the season at the French Open. There, you just you can't deny she's a sleeper. She's someone in the draw uh, you need to be fearful of. And given that she'll be seated, it's really going to be interesting to see uh, who's part of the draw she gets placed in. But with that in mind, I'm going to change gears with my next player. I'm going to go with someone who, you know, isn't on the top of people's lists in terms of most plausible to win this year's U.S. Open, but is someone who I think slowly but surely has gotten better and better as the season progressed. She's a young player who you and I, again, talked about as well in depth in our next-gen WTA Top 10 seasons of 2019. Diana Yastremska is a player I'm watching going into this U.S. Open. Well, that's a really good call, and... I get the first thought that comes to mind is that when I wrote about Madison Keys earlier at tennisaccent.com, I, I said that she has inspired the WTA locker room. And the particular reason I made for that claim is that it's not just that Madison Keys was struggling and then she found herself. Obviously, that's a point of inspiration for a lot of tennis players on a general level. But it's more particular to Keys herself that she is a huge hitter. And huge hitters labor under the obvious burden. And it's a burden because it is so obvious. You know, it's, it's a voice that's hard to dismiss from your head if you are that kind of player. But a huge hitter knows that he or she has to be able to rein in the power and keep the ball in the court. So for someone such as Diana Yastremska, who tries to crush the ball at every possible opportunity, seeing Madison Keys win Cincinnati, that could be a, something which turns the light on for New York. Absolutely. And I got the chance to watch Yastrzemska blow Caroline Wozniacki off the court in her first round match in Cincinnati. And you look at her results on the hard court in 2019. Uh, you know, she made the third round of the Australian Open before losing to Serena, which you know, then not not a bad loss at all for a 19-year-old. She's won a title on the hard courts this year in Fahin. She beat Muguruza, Lynette, and Tamjanovic on her run to the title since Wimbledon. Not the craziest results, but she beats Kanta. She beats Azarenka to make the round of 16 in Toronto. As I mentioned, she beat Wozniacki before losing to Svetlana Kuznetsova in three sets in Cincinnati. Uh, but even more impressively, you look at who she's lost to on hard courts this year. Mukova, you know, 
we talked about her before the podcast. She's looked great this year. Benchich, we know what she's been capable of. Serena, Mugarusa, Gavrilova, Barty, Kennan, Kuznetsova in three. You have to be very good to beat Diana Yastrzemska on a hard court because she can just, as you mentioned, she can hit you off the court. Yeah, I mean, she she can take the racket out of your hand, and it was it was noticeable. I mean, this isn't a hard court point, but you know, she stood up to Kennan at Wimbledon. I mean, that was a that was a battle royale, lots of howitzers from from both ends of the court, and Yastremska was the last woman standing. If you can stand up to Sophia Kennan, who is so mentally tough, and you know, Kennan obviously she benefited from Osaka's injury, but let's let's remember that. After losing the second set and before Osaka got injured, Kennan was able to reset the dial in the start of the third set. Kennan is so good at such a young age at resetting, which is something that so many players uh, find it hard to do throughout their careers. So when you stand up to Kennan, you know that you've really achieved something. Stremska stood up to Kennan successfully at Wimbledon. That, that showed me a lot about her. So, you know, the, the idea that she can catch fire – uh, at the National Tennis Center wouldn't be terribly surprising at all. Getting back to this idea of the profile of a player who would make their first semifinal breakthrough, which we've seen at all of these slams, uh, a young player who has had success at a slam, Yastrzemska, made the fourth round of Wimbledon, as you mentioned, so she knows how to get to a second week. You look at the profiles, you know, Von Drusova did it at the French Open. We saw Anissa Mova do it. Uh, you know, Barty, relatively young, but the success she's had uh, this year. It's the players who, in the slow buildup, have the sort of results that leave little breadcrumbs that they're capable of this. And Diana, Diana Yastrzemska's resume from 2019 is screaming, I have, you know, late rounds of Grand Slams in my future. And that's why I think she's just definitely, you know, depending on where she gets in the draw. And I think she may be seeded. She's going to be right around that 30, 31, 32 seed. So that could have really interesting implications depending on, you know, how the seeds break out. Yes. And and we have to remind ourselves that, you know, being a top five WTA seed in 2019 means practically nothing in terms of predicting how deep you're going to go into a draw. I mean, at, at the last two years, uh, a number 11 seed has been in the Wimbledon final. And, uh, you know, Simona Halep, who was supposed to do well at Roland Garros, she won Wimbledon. Ash Barty, who was supposed to win Wimbledon, she won Roland Garros. So, you know, really pick a name out of the hat uh, and and really do not pay much attention to the seeds. It's more about the matchups and the draw. I mean, you know, to just just to just spend a little bit of time on, on uh, predicting the U.S. Open and relating that to Wimbledon, I mean, the one thing that was true, I, I mean, practically no one expected Halep to win the tournament, but even even that then, with that having been said, it was true that Halep landed in the bottom half of the draw, which was better for her. I mean, there was at least a potential path for her. No one thought that she'd, you know, ride that path all the way to the title, but it was true that she was you know, removed from Barty and Benchich and Serena and Kerber and Stevens and Kanta and Kvitova, who are all in the top half. So, you know, when we do look at the draw, it, it will be worth noting where the concentration of especially formidable players is. There's going to be very likely a pr- comparatively weaker or more wide open quarter. And from that quarter, you, you, you're likely to get your first time major semifinalist. 
I feel like the fact that Van Drusseva made the final at the French Open is that point in a nutshell. It really just depends how everything breaks out. I completely agree with you, and that's why, again, these are not we're not making predictions that these players are necessarily going to win the U.S. Open. We are simply saying, given their level, given where they're at in their personal narrative, these are players to watch. And with that in mind, Matt, your second player to watch heading into the U.S. Open. Bianca Andreescu. Perfect. And I'm glad you said that because I have Belinda Bencic, but I was really wrestling whether to put Bencic in an, or Andrescu, and much like our next gen pod, I feel like uh, top 10 seasons, I feel like we can link these two together sort of to, to start. Make the, make the reason for Andrescu. Make the case. Well, it's it's very simply that when she's been able, when her body hasn't broken down, she has won the last two hardcore tournaments she has played and she has been, you know, very formidable opposition she's beaten major champions multiple times uh in her runs to the indian wells and toronto championships and it was ironic and and also in a sense fitting that that serena williams was her opponent in the toronto final obviously the match was abbreviated by serena's back spasms but it was fascinating just to have the two of them there in that final because serena has spent 20 years doing what Bianca Andreescu did in Toronto, and that is showing that you can kick butt after long layoffs. I mean, so so Andreescu showed that she could do that. Serena's been doing that for two decades, so that that was a pretty fascinating element of that abbreviated Toronto final. So you know, just Andreescu, she is a tough out. She's made herself into a tough out, and. It's it's it defies the odds, and and I would admit that you know if she continues to play seesaw three setters, it's the laws of averages figure to catch up with her. But if she can uh, put a few straight setters into the mix, which she probably can and will get in the first two rounds at the U.S. Open, you know when then when you get into Labor Day weekend and early into the second week, four four in the third set. You know, maybe against uh, Halep or uh, possibly um, Barty, you know, maybe it's not going to break Andrescu's way, but it's really hard to bet against her in those kinds of situations right now. So that that is something that, that you know, the rest of the WTA Tour has not been able to topple her late in the third set of a really close match. That is the, the trump card that she owns over the rest of the field right now. I completely agree with you. When Bianca Andreescu has played, she's won. I mean, she wins Indian Wells. She wins Toronto. You don't do that without, you know, playing a high level of tennis, without pulling out three set matches. And she seems to do that repeatedly and as I mentioned with Yastremska, you look at the profile of a player who is going to make a breakthrough at the semifinal. Bianca Andreescu has never been a top 16 seed before. So she, as you mentioned, she's going to have those opportunities where the draw may favor her more so in the early rounds than it ever has. I mean, certainly it will. And so, you know, as you mentioned, she gets to that fourth round if she's playing a seed, regardless of who it is. It's a dangerous matchup. She has been that good this year. And it's interesting uh, why I wanted to relate her to Benchich is because you look at both of those players, the runs they've had on hard courts, as good as any individual one-week span from any player on the WTA Tour. So you keep getting back to this, you know, whoever plays well on a given week, they can be the champion. Well, Belinda Benchich, Bianca Andreescu have both put up cases. Uh, you mentioned for Andreescu, for Benchich, uh, her run to the Dubai title where she beat Sabalin 
Sabalenka helps. Vitalina Kvitova in back-to-back-to-back-to-back uh, three-set matches. She makes a final in Mallorca where she lost to Kennan, but she just has been, you know, so she made that semifinal run in Indian Wells where she lost to Kerber. She has been one of those few players who have put together one of those, those sort of, you know, two-week runs on hard courts, and you just can't say that about a lot of other players. Absolutely not. And we are left with the reality that if Bianca Andreescu does win the U.S. Open, I'm not predicting it. I'm not saying it's likely, but just <laughs> if, if she wins, she's the best hardcore player in the world. Period. Period. Yeah, I know. I, I completely. The, the she, counter- would, she, would, she would dethrone Osaka in that regard. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is the only person who probably. Well. What if Madison Keys wins? I mean, that's if she wins, then she has a claim. But you could say for Madison Keys, when she plays her best tennis big uh, on a hard court. In fact, I, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's really where I wanted to go next. Uh, that's my player to watch. Uh, because, again, it's all of these qualities, right? Andrescu, Kenin, or not Kenin, Andrescu, Keys, Benchich, they have the ability to just hit their opponents off the court. They do, and Keys was on my list of five players to watch. Uh, you know, she... She would not have been if she uh, had quietly exited early in Cincinnati, but, well, she didn't exit uh, early in Cincinnati. She didn't exit at all, or at least she didn't exit until she had won the damn thing. So, you know, to me, this gets into a particularly interesting part of our discussion. For Kenan and Andrescu, they're going to get many bites of the apple, or at least, you know, assuming that Andrescu's shoulder, you know, stabilizes and she isn't battling that shoulder throughout her career. You know, for the young players, it's this is all new. It's all gravy. This is house money. I mean, there, there's no, yeah, there's going to be some media scrutiny, but there's no really profound pressure to have to win for Kenan or Andrescu. But for Madison Keys, and also for Sloan Stevens, I'm going to throw her into the mix. Oh. Can I just say that's perfect because on my list, I told you I cheated. I have Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys in the same place. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and obviously Sloan has the major and Keys doesn't, but still, the tennis clock is ticking for both of them. Sloan in particular, but also, but really also Keys. I mean, they they, they are in what are supposed to be their prime years. Uh, you can also include Garbina Muguruza in, in on this list. You know, the, their their talent has been displayed. I mean, we know how great they can be when they are at their best. And so are their careers going to, you know, fulfill all that talent they possess or not? So there is such a profound urgency attached to the journey of Keys, also Stevens, um, that that's that, that makes this U.S. Open a, a cauldron of pressure for them in a way that you can't begin to equate to uh, Kenan or Andrescu. You know, for them, it's it's all new and wonderful and wow what an opportunity, but for, for Keys and Stevens, this, this U.S. Open, obviously they need to, you know, treat it with a positive attitude, but this U.S. Open really is a burden, and there is real pressure on their backs to perform and live up to their talent because you don't want to get two or three years from now and they're just kind of rolling around in, in the back end of the top 50 like Grigor Dimitrov is right now. So, you know, that, there's real pressure for Keys and Stevens and several other players you could mention in a similar vein. Whereas the kids, you know, this is like a just a, a chance to now play the U.S. Open with more of a spotlight and and learn lessons really for the 2020s. I mean, no one's going to be hypercritical 
of Kennan or Andrescu if they lose early. But if Keys or Stevens lose early, that's going to be a really bad look and a really tough loss to absorb um, late in the 2019 season. One of the reasons I had Benchich highlighted, uh, this is her fifth career U.S. Open, but, you know, there, there's kind of sparse because she's dealt with injuries. She made the quarterfinals here in 2014, her only quarterfinals at a major. So we've seen her have success here before. She's made the third round at all three slams this year. So she's been knocking on the door. But you talk about Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens. For both of them, I believe it's their eighth career U.S. Open appearance. Obviously, uh, their careers in 2017 you know, that kind of culminated in that final they played, both getting there at the same time. Sloan ends up taking that match. But I think for Madison Keys, when I was doing the research for this, something I found really, really interesting about her uh, results on at the slams, and particularly at hardcourt slams, no, she hasn't gotten over the finish line, but she hasn't lost before the fourth round of a hard at a hardcourt major since 2014. So we're talking, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, now half of 19, so now nine slams on hard courts where she's made at least the fourth round. You look at what she's done at the U.S. Open over these past two years, finals of 2017, semifinals last year. She knows how to succeed, not only at hardcourt majors, but particularly in New York. And yeah, her confidence going into that Cincy uh, tournament, who knows where it was. She lost, I believe, first round of the City Open to Haley Baptiste. She lost in this, uh, in Toronto to Vekic, first round in three sets. Then she ends up going to Cincy, you know, that ridiculous run, Muguruza, Kastakina, Hal, Venus, Kenan, Kuznetsova, and just given... I guess what she's done at the open before having that little that little confidence boost even though it's only one week it's the sort of thing where right away she could be pushed back on track and given the openness as we've mentioned of this women's side of the draw of just this women's draw in general there's no reason she can't win this tournament there isn't and one point to add to what all that you've said Alex is that it's not as though he's crushed most of her opponents what Keys did, which was different, was you know, the main problem with her is that a bad one or two points often bleed into the next two or three games. That, that a, few, a few really bad errors turn into you know 10 awful minutes of tennis, and then she's done. And so in Cincinnati, the thing that Keys did, and she doesn't do this nearly enough, but she did it this past week, she played a bad point, she committed an awful error, she let it go. For whatever reason, whatever you know, whatever she had for breakfast, or maybe it was the skyline <laughs> chill, chili in Cincinnati, whatever, she she just reset the dial. She moved on. She she played with a clear mind. She turned the page. You know, in the in the final, she was down five three in both sets to Kuznetsova, and she broke Kuznetsova both times with Kuznetsova serving at five four. And both times in those five four service games. In each set, she made a spectacular running forehand winner, and her court coverage was great. Hitting shots on the run was great, but most of all, her resilience. She just buckled down, didn't let the scoreboard or previous misses affect her. This is the Madison Keys we always want to see. This is the Madison Keys we live for. A resilient Madison Keys is the best Madison Keys, and if that Madison Keys shows up to New York, she's going to lift a trophy. 
I completely agree with you. And look, she started the year ranked 17. She's up to number nine now, but has those semifinal points to defend. She's 13 overall in the race to send Jen, 22 and 11 on the year, but two titles in Charleston and Cincinnati. She made the quarterfinals quietly at this year's French Open, and again, her consistency at the slam, she really has gotten better and better at those over her career. We talk about it. This draw is a crapshoot, and the player who—this is very simple, but it really will be the player who plays best over those two weeks in New York will win, and on paper, emphasis, on paper, no one has more momentum going into this 2019 U.S. Open than Madison Keys. Yes, and but it, but and, and the point to emphasize though is that it's a momentum not rooted in you know every shot she hit turns to gold. It's rooted in finding a way to compete. You know, I make this distinction all the time. There's playing tennis, and then there's competing at tennis. Playing is how well you wave the magic wand, the stick in your hand. Competing is how you fight, how you cope, how you handle adversity. And what carried Madison and Cincinnati was not the waving of the magic wand, though she's obviously hit shots a lot better than she, she often does. You know, she, she managed to calibrate her backhand to the corners of the court a lot better than normal. But nevertheless, as, as well as she hit the ball in important situations, it was her resilience that really allowed that, that title to happen. So if, if she can, if she, much like Medvedev, can enter this space of hitting huge, but calibrated and contained under pressure, because that's what both players did. Medvedev a little bit more of the serve, Keys a little bit more of the ground strokes. If they can both retain that mental space that they found in Cincinnati, especially over the weekend, I mean, they are going to be real heavy for the rest of the tour. I completely agree with you. And it's funny that you mentioned resilience because someone whose game is so dependent on resilience and being willing to track down that app, op, that extra ball who is in a completely opposite situation of Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, who, if you look at, you know, going into the U.S. Open, setting the scene for a player, the last thing you want going on is heading into the year's final slam. You have just parted ways with your coach, and obviously Sloane Stevens just parted ways with her coach, uh, Sven Grunfeld, who, uh, you know, go, when you have that happen going into a slam, it obviously is going to pique people's interests. I had the chance to sit down at her media roundtable event in Cincinnati, and, you know, Sloane talked about how important it was for her to just get back to the basics, all those things. She has confidence in her game, knows what she's capable of. It's just seeing the results happen. But she talked about how important it was for her just get a win, get on the board. And she got one win in Cincinnati, but just the way she went out in that next match and just overall her season, 21 and 15, again, it's that sort of opposite point of Madison Keys. Uh, I mean, certainly in terms of the present moment, that's absolutely true. I mean, it, it was baffling to see Stevens grind out a win early in Cincinnati and then just get absolutely wiped by Kuznetsova, you know, in 52 minutes. And I was surprised to see the, the, the coach firing just before the U.S. Open because at Wimbledon, you know, she did lose in week one, but she lost because Joe Conta was amazing. That was an extremely high-level match from Conta to beat Steven. Sloan played the first two sets really as well as she realistically could have, and Conta just took the match away from her. I mean, it was it was it was nothing that Sloan Stevens did poorly. It was Conta doing everything right when she absolutely had to. So I I thought 
at the time that, you know, Sloan should leave Wimbledon, you know, with a, you know, she didn't have the results she wanted, but she played good tennis. It should have been a source of optimism for the summer hardcourt season and it just didn't translate. So the, the, you know, the, the reality with Sloan in 2018, this was pronounced in 2018. You know, she made the uh, Roland Garros final, didn't do well at Wimbledon. She made the Montreal final, uh, but then, you know, then she, you know, her, the health and, you know, she, she, like Roger Federer, succumbed to the extreme heat uh, in her loss. She lost to Sevastova in the uh, quarterfinals. That was a real disappointment. And it seems that in many ways she hasn't been the same player since that moment. We haven't seen, you know, the ups and downs with Sloan Stevens are obviously exasperating to her fans, but we haven't seen the really high, the really big highs this year. It's been just a lot more lows and moderate results. There hasn't been the supreme high, which makes the the uh, early exits, you know, tolerable. There hasn't been the, the big payoff moment in 2019, unlike 2018 when she was making more finals of significant tournaments at her best. So there, there's a real period of drift right now for Sloan, and that that's a part of why this U.S. Open really is a last chance to salvage her 2019. You know, if she, if she can at least make a semifinal, you know, I think that she can look back on 2019 and say, well, you know, I regrouped. I took a lot of hits, but I'm still standing, and I can really now build toward 2020. But, boy, if we see a week one exit in New York, it's just, it's just going to feel like, uh, you know, her, the house of Sloan has been reduced to rubble heading into the 2020s. She's 21 and 15 on the year. She started the year ranked five. Yes, she's sitting at number 10, but in the race to Shenzhen, she's number 21. No finals. She really, her her claim to fame, as you mentioned, she makes that semifinals in Madrid, follows it up with a quarterfinal at the French Open, but that's really it. And you look at her performances since Wimbledon lost first round of Peterson City Open, loses first match to Buzkova in Toronto, beats Putin Seva, but as you mentioned, the funky loss to Kuznetsova in her second match in Cincy. Yeah, it's it's make or break time for Sloane Stevens. And look, you look at her uh, career at the U.S. Open, it's her eighth Open. She lost in the quarterfinals last year after winning in 2017. She has made the quarterfinals or better in four of her last eight majors, and she made the fourth round at this year's Australian Open but nothing going into this tournament has me confident uh, has me confident in Sloane Stevens' form. And yeah, you know, she could win the tournament. She could lose first round. Everything's in play with her. Everything is, and and that you know that the the point to remind everyone of here is that this has been a year of players winning tournaments or making finals or semi major semifinals out of nowhere. Streets of uh, <laughs> you know at, at at Wimbledon for sure. Also Svitolina at Wimbledon. And then uh, Anna Samova at the French, um, also Danielle Collins at the Australian. So, you know, we're all bad-mouthing Sloane Stevens right now. And, you know, if, and then just so sure enough, she's probably going to win the tournament, right? <laughs> exactly. And let me say, in Cincy at the round table, she was confident as ever. You know, she is such a presence. She always is going to maintain that public face of confidence and there's, I'm never going to doubt her. I agree. Like it's totally plausible. She's in the semifinals. It wouldn't shock me at all. Nope. Yeah. All right. I believe you have listed four of your players, Matt. Um. So I think you only have one more to go. Your last player on the list. 
Carolina Pliskova. And really? uh, I say that I say that because, you know, she she took the toughest loss at Wimbledon. I mean, you know, Serena lost to Halep in the final, but Serena still had a great tournament. But Pliskova ate the toughest loss because she was serving twice for the match against Mukova and couldn't get it done either time. And Mukova played good return games, but Pliskova did toss in an error or two in each of those uh, two service games in, w- in which she was broken. Uh, so that was a nasty loss. Her path to a Wimbledon final was right there. I mean, she had a great draw. She had the draw that Halep had. You know, she could have she could have been the one, uh, you know, to emerge from the bottom half of the draw and, and play Serena in the final, uh, and she didn't. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how the queen of the quarterfinal, uh, assuming that she gets back to that round, how she's going to handle handle the latter stages of the U.S. Open because it's, it's really been a roadblock for her. I did mention it earlier. So, you know, among the, you know, so I've mentioned uh, Keys, Stevens, Andrescu, Kennan, so uh, three Americans and a, and a, and a Canadian. Uh, so Pliskova really is the European player who comes to New York with a lot to prove. And, you know, it, it, one can make the legitimate argument that, after Halep and Wozniacki got on the board last year, that Pliskova right now is the best active WTA player who hasn't yet won a major. I mean, you could make arguments for others, but she's certainly in the mix. And so if she doesn't walk away from this volatile, wide-open 2019 WTA season with a major, you know, you, ha- you have to wonder, in 2020, are we going to see the emergence of more stability? Are some players going to make two or three major semifinals and a couple of major finals? If players do become more stable at the very top tier of the sport, this 19, 2019 U.S. Open could, in retrospect, become one of Pliskova's very last chances to to go all the way. So there's an enormous amount of pressure on her. And I would say as much pressure as there is on Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens there's more pressure on Carolina Pushko. I think she carries the most pressure of any WTA player going into the U.S. Open. You look at the WTA top 10, Naomi Osaka, she's made a semifinal. Barty's done it. Halep's done it. Svitolina's done it. Kvitova's done it. Serena's done it. Keys and Stevens haven't, but we just talked about them. Kiki Burton's hasn't, but yeah, Carolina Pliskova sitting at number three in the live rankings. All eyes are on her. She had that chance. We talked about going into that second week of Wimbledon. She was, you know, one of the favorites uh, if you looked on paper. And, you know, there's no reason why her game can't thrive at the U.S. Open. So I think everything you stated is valid. For her, a lot of it's going to be what does her draw look like? It's it because there are so many floaters in that ten to thirty range who are threats uh, any given day to win a match. Uh, it's going to be very draw dependent. But if things break right, you're absolutely right. There's no reason we can't see her not only make that jump to the semifinals, but in the winner's circle. No doubt. I mean, she and she. I mean, this year, this just just 2019, she and Barty have been very good about making the latter stages of a lot of tournaments. Uh, but on a, on a larger level, you know, with Barty kind of feeling her way through the tour in 2017, 2018, as she was getting back into the flow of things after her hiatus, you know, to test herself at cricket. You know, in 2017, 2018, Pliskova was good for making a lot of quarterfinals. I mean, she she is one of the more 
comparatively consistent players on a WTA tour defined by inconsistency. So the, the, the notion that keeps rising in a good way for Pliskova as a positive sign is volume. You know, you keep giving yourself chances in quarters, uh, you know, in the final eight of a draw, you keep making them. It's bound to turn your way eventually. That's what she's going to be banking on. But of course, math doesn't help you win a major quarterfinal. You have to go up there and take it. And uh, it's been a while. I agree with you again. That's why it's going to be so fun to see how this major breaks out because there's so many players who can really make convincing cases. But for my last two, uh, for one of them, you know, one of it's more I fell in love in Cincinnati with her game. I fell in love with the idea of, again, we know someone is going to break out, make a fourth round, a quarterfinal, unexpected, a player who I uh, circled on my list after seeing her play. Jennifer Brady, who you look at what she's done on, on the hard court since Wimbledon. Yeah, she lost to Kennan first round of City Open, but in Toronto, she qualifies, beats Pang, beats Pui, beats Mladenovic, loses to Halep in three sets. In Cincy, she beats Tushman, she beats Lynette, uh, she beats Jabour, she lo- and then loses to C. Uh, but you look at her experience, this is her third career U.S. Open. She made the fourth round there in 2017. Her two career Grand Slam fourth round Rounds have come on hard court, the other being uh, the 2017 Australian Open. You know, she's 60, number 66 right now in the rankings, 54 in the race to Shenzhen, 30 and 19 on the year. I just think someone's going to come from that 50 to 75 range, and she's the player I've circled. That's a great choice. And I go back to Toronto, where she was down four love in the third set to Halep, and she, she won the next five games. Now, she didn't... Cl- she lost, I believe, in a tiebreaker. But, uh, you know, if you're down 4 nothing to Simona Halep in the third set and you cause Halep to sweat bullets at the very end, that, that gets noticed. So she she's definitely competed better. She served for the first set against Shea in uh, Cincinnati and got broken, and she lost the first set and the match. You know, so that was still kind of a reminder of how far she has to go. But the way she fought against Halep, Uh, And the fact that she didn't throw in the towel when it would have been very easy to do so and nobody really would have blamed her if she had, that was a moment which, you know, opened my eyes and and made me, you know, keep, keep, uh, uh, stay attentive to what Jennifer Brady is doing. The idea that she could make the round of 16, that would not surprise me one bit in New York. Absolutely. And look, we at Cracked Rackets, huge proponents of college tennis as well. Jennifer Brady, a UCLA product. So anytime we can see that sort of transfer succeed, I'm all in on that. So circle that name. If, you know, the draw breaks right, she's someone you could see third, fourth round, I agree. But my last name I wanted to go with, and I want you to know it came down to a choice, much like it did in our top 10 next-gen seasons between players like Donna Vekic, uh, Sabalenka, Kontave, uh, not in that age bracket, but C, uh, I think those are all players who, you know, we've seen, they're in that 22. 20- two to 25 range other than C I suppose who we've seen have success but haven't really broken out at a major or have been up and down throughout their 2019 season and are players who given the level we know they're capable of could have much like we talked about with Sloan Stevens sort of a breakthrough week but because we shortchanged this player on our next gen pod because it's no longer her birthday but she does qualify for this list my last player someone who I think has been in very good form since Wimbledon Maria Sakari who comes in 
into it, currently ranked number 29 in the live rankings, number 19 in the race to Shenzhen, 29 and 18 overall in the year one title in Rabat. But you look at what she's done since uh, Wimbledon, as I mentioned. San Jose, she makes the semifinals. She beats Alexandrova, Hibby, Svitolina before losing to Zhang. She loses first round of Toronto to risk, but in a very tight three-set match. And then she goes to Cincy. She beats Georgie. She beats Kvitova. She beats Sabalenka in a match. I believe Sabalenka was up a set in 3-0 to make the quarterfinals before losing uh, after being up a set on Ashley Barty. Look, they're, they're much like on the guy side, uh, with all of these openings, you have to ask for the players you know, in that 22 to 26 range. If not now, when you're supposedly in your physical prime, when are you going to make uh, that sort of breakthrough into a second week of a Grand Slam? And given how all of the stars are aligning for someone new to break through, that's the theme of this podcast is the breakthrough chances are there. Maria Sakari is a player who is right at the top of my list of someone we could see make that sort of jump in New York. Uh, I think that's a great call. The, you know, she's she has made herself relevant on multiple surfaces this year. Uh, you know, what she did in Rabat. I mean, she she played Kanta and beat her in the Rabat final and um, played her closely. And I believe it was the Rome semis, either the semis or the quarters. Um, and, and, you know, she is, she has proved to be a tough out and, you know, she, she, she was down five, two to Barty in the first set of their Cincinnati match. And then Sakari won five straight games, to take the first set seven, five Barty did bounce back to beat her, but nevertheless, Sakari has proven that a lot like Sophia Kennan, she's not an easy player to put away. She makes you beat her. She doesn't really capitulate very easily, and that and on a WTA tour where consistency has been very elusive for players, uh, you know, a player with Sakari's toughness can easily insert herself right to the forefront of the conversation. I agree with you. And look, the case against her, she's never made a Grand Slam fourth round. She's made six third round appearances, but never made that second week. She made the third round at this year's Australian Open, but lost second year uh, round last year here. A lot of her success uh, at the bigger events, her title or, or her semifinal in Rome, her quarterfinal in Charleston, both on the clay. Uh, so yeah, it, it would certainly be not not totally you know if she makes a semifinals finals that would be a little unexpected but a second week here very much in the realm of possibility and we've gone through our list we didn't mention two players um one of which I, I just want to ask you about them quickly. We don't have to go into as much depth, but Coco Goff, obviously the breakout star of Wimbledon, making a fourth round. She gets a main draw wild card into this event. What would you like to see from her, Matt? Not necessarily to legitimize the Wimbledon process, but we saw her qualify at the City Open, lose first round. Uh, is there, you know, what will you be looking for from Coco Goff in New York this week? I'm going to be looking for her not getting injured and for people to not attach too much significance to whatever result she posts. I mean, I don't want to really fuel any hype whatsoever at this point. Let her enjoy the process of playing tennis. This should be an expectation-free tournament. I mean, you know that the media hordes are going to be all over her. So really, at, at, at this point, it's important for her parents, you know, since her dad is her coach, to you know, create a an inspire a love of fun, a love of love of learning, 
just the love of absorbing the experience, taking it in, you know, obviously being open to studying, you know, the process of how to carry yourself as a professional tennis player, but not associating any strong emotional attachment to whatever emotional, to whatever result uh, occurs. And that's even to a good result. You know, if she makes the fourth round again, and you get the media hype train going again, as it did at Wimbledon. It's going to be even more magnified here. It would be a lot like the Melanie Udan run to the quarters uh, several years ago. You know, if that media circus happens, don't emotionally attach yourself to that result. Just focus on the enjoyment of playing, competing, studying, evolving. That That's really the main thing for her. I, I could not agree more. Look, qualifying at the City Open this year for a 15-year-old, that's a massive win. You know, if she wins a round at the U.S. Open, the word you kept using I agree with, it's gravy. Like, for her just to have this experience, it's gravy. It's the sort of thing you dream about as a 15-year-old. So I completely agree with you. I hope the New York crowd embraces her. Uh, but the last player I want to talk about, someone who will certainly get the media hype, making her return to the U.S. Open, uh, you talked about the injury concerns she faces, but she played well in, uh, you know, when we got to see her make that final in Toronto, Serena Williams. Now, I, I, I feel like the question has to be asked uh, when we're talking about our list of 35 players. She is absolutely on the list of players who can still win this U.S. Open, right? Absolutely. And, well, it's, it's really just about how how physically ready she will be. And I'm not going to make any predictions. Obviously, if she's reasonably fit, you know, she she can she can win it all. And I think the main thing to to stress about Serena Williams is that you know the, getting to number 24 is obviously naturally logically been a constant point of focus for the tennis media and people in the tennis community. But that focus, I think, and and the urgency with which a lot of people want to see her tie Margaret Court so that we never have to see Margaret Court, you know, at number one outright ever again. That's obviously something a lot of people care about just in terms of the optics. But the 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 incessant focus on that, no matter how reasonable that focus might be, has, I think, taken the tennis community away from appreciating what Serena has done. Let's remember that she's almost 38 and she has made the Wimbledon final each of the last two years. She made the U.S. Open final last year. She has done really well under incredibly complicated circumstances. And the fact that she hasn't actually won the trophy, the fact that she used to be such a closer in major finals, but has now gone through a, a period of losing a number of major finals in a row, it, it has created a feeling of disappointment. And wait a minute, she's almost 38 She's still competing at the highest level. What she's doing is adding to her legacy, not diminishing it. I want to make that point about Serena Jamika Williams. I completely agree with you. Again, that she's even in the realm at this point of her career, it speaks to you know why she's the greatest athlete to maybe ever compete in the game of tennis men's or women's side. Uh, it's why it's so fun. Just enjoy these final runs because eventually it will come to an end. I completely agree with you. But with that in mind, we've gone through our lists. Obviously, the draws have not come out yet, and we will talk about that more when they come out later in the week. But any final thoughts from you, Matt, on this Women's Singles 2019 U.S. Open? Pick a name out of the hat, baby. Let's go.
That's the theme. You don't like my Hunger Games? More pick a name out of the hat. Hunger Games too young for you? Oh, Hunger Hunger Games is great. It's just my thought is, you know, who 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 in the whole wide world knows what's going to happen? Who has a remote clue of what's going to happen? I've never gone into a major tournament for one for for one you know women or men with less of a clue on on who's going to win, who's going to make the semifinals. It is just all up in the air. See, after our last podcast, I expected you to come in. Alex, have, have you seen Hoosiers? It's one of those films, you know, from back in the day. That reminds me of Kavitova. <laughs> yeah, you're, I, I don't have an old Jewish uncle, but you're, you sure sounded like one. Well, let me tell you, I do have an old Jewish uncle, and that is what So you entertained like. him really well. Yeah. That's my voice. Bravo. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree with you. I, I think the women's side is – that's why I'm really looking forward to this 2019 U.S. Open because I think on the men's side as well, there are brief glimpses that we might have a bit of an opening. In fact, I don't know if I'm going to have you before I'm going to have uh, – or before we do our preview. So I'm going to ask you now. I'm going to sneak in one more question unprepared, but – we play a game of possible or Alex, you're effing crazy on the mini break podcast. And I asked to the question, do you think we will have two uh, first time career semifinalists at this year's U S open on the men's side? Do you think that's possible or not? It's possible. I wouldn't say it's likely, but it's certainly possible because I, I you just look at the list of guys and it's, it's much like this, right? You look at the Zverev's he's never done a catch knob Medvedev. Uh, you can okay. You know. Okay, let's let's say this right now. Zverev's not going to do it. <laughs> but let's just shut that one down, okay? That is, he's a lost puppy dog. He he doesn't he can't find his bone. He's sad. He's getting kicked around. That that boy needs needs to get away from tennis for several months. I personally think that he should, you know, a, a, after this U.S. Open's over, go to a remote island. You know, chug a bottle of alcohol, you know, ATP next gin, pass the <laughs> alcohol, please. He needs to get away from tennis. I'm serious. I'm laughing, but I'm dead serious. What, I don't see what he's learning by getting kicked around from one city to another. He is absolutely lost at sea. He needs to have a lot of fun. He also needs to get his private life, you know, organized. I mean, I think this year was a real epiphany for him in terms of how off-court stuff can sabotage what you're trying to do on the court. He needs to get that stuff straightened out in full and spend months without swinging a tennis racket or seeing a tennis ball you know, on, on, on an actual court and then come back fresh for 2020 and just hit the reset button because there, there's just, he, is, he, he looks like a burned-out player. He looks like a confused player. Uh, he looks like a player who just has no sense of direction. When that's happening, young players need to take breaks instead of just trying to keep their head down and and keep working as though if they just you know work hit enough balls, it's it's all gonna start happening for them. No, Zverev needs to recharge and replenish mentally, and when he does that, you know I think he'll be capable of great things once again. But right now, he's in absolutely no position to do anything in New York. You just talked about it. He's clearly trying to play through it. And 
you know, whether that's worked or not, 20 double faults suggest uh, the latter. Uh, but then I'm throwing in one more bonus one. More likely to make the U.S. Open semifinals, Nick Kyrgios or Alex Zverev? No! <laughs> Hell no! <laughs> I mean, I'd watch the it. It'd be a great... The answer is no! <laughs> yeah. The answer is Mo Leani ensures that doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would be must-see TV, Neither fourth round. Neither one of them are going to come close to the semis. <laughs> Z- and I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to say zero chance. There is a zero percent chance. I mean, technically, math nerds will say, well, if they're in the tournament, they have a chance. But I'm just going to say, I am writing them off right now. Listen to my Sharpie go over the piece of paper. That, that's me writing them off. There you go. See, uh, that's one of those times when Stokoic would say, Alex, you're f***ing crazy. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I, I, we I, 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 Yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect way to go full circle. I love it. Well, then, before I let you go one more time, I want to ask you, where can our listeners find your stuff, your tennis with an accent team stuff as they get ready for this U.S. Open? So you can find us at TennisAccent.com. You can find me at M-Z-E-M as in Michael E-K. And you can find my partner, Saqib Ali, at S-A-Q-I-B-A. We're on the web at TennisAccent.com. And so here's our big announcement. Um, we, we got a, you know, a modest size donation from an anonymous donor, and he wants to fund some 2,000-word long-read deep-dive pieces. You're going to see several of these pieces from freelancers during the U.S. Open and we really hope that that you're going to enjoy these. I guess some of them are going to be investigations. Some of them are just going to be analysis. But they're all going to have the kind of research. It's not just going to be argumentation. It's going to be research or historical analysis or interviews or a combination thereof. We're going to have several pieces from freelancers that will showcase tennis journalism as you haven't. Not, not as you haven't seen it before, but you don't get nearly enough of the deep dive type uh, uh, explorations of topics that you're going to see from tennis with an accent during the U.S. Open. So um, we, we really want your feedback on what our freelance team, we're going to have core contributions from me. You know, I'm going to be doing the three, four articles a day. Murder Tunga is going to contribute. Andrew Burton's going to contribute. But um, we're going to get some freelancers in, and we really would like the Cracked Rackets community to offer feedback on these freelance pieces that we're going to periodically share. It's probably going to be somewhere in the range of six on the low end, maybe as many as 10 or 11 on the high end. It's going to be some 2,000-word long-reads pieces. We really hope that we're going to create a new sense of possibility for tennis journalism at the U.S. Open. Let me just say, my first piece I did for Cracked Rackets was a 16,000-word essay that I think we ended up doing in like eight parts talking about who wore the American men's tennis belt, who the best players have been uh, at any given year throughout the open era. So this sounds right up my, uh, you know, right up my alley. And I hope our Cracked Rackets listeners, seriously, go check out, the because the work at TennisAccent.com, your team at Tennis with an Accent, really, it stands out as second to none. So I hope our listeners do go check that out. And, you know, if on 
on the podcast front, you've missed anything, be sure to check out our podcast, this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the mini break, which will be going every day throughout the U.S. Open. So if you miss any of the matches, you want to get a primer in before you head out, you know, one, listen to the Tennis with an Accent podcast so you do head out with the proper amount of sunscreen you're prepared for the day. Uh, But two, you know, check out that mini break because every day we'll keep you up to date with the, you know, latest results, controversies, scores from the U.S. Open so you won't want to miss any of it. Another person who I, you know, can't end this podcast without thanking someone we would always miss if he wasn't there are super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- of an editing job to do, as always, and we will be keeping them busy all uh, U.S. Open long. So, again, check out the podcast, check out the website, like, rate, subscribe, review. We want to hear from you guys. Are there matches you want us to cover on a particular day? Let us know, and we will do our best to watch it. But with that being said... From my incredible co-host, Matt Zemek, who again, TennisAccent.com to find his work, or at MZemek, for our super producers, Max Fligner, Daniel Westhoff, and for our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Matt, as always, I cannot thank you enough for doing this, but what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. I love hearing it, and we will see you all throughout the U.S. Open. Thanks again, Matt. Enjoy the Open, man. Enjoy the Open, man.